Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anna Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. We'll focus on legal technology, knowledge management, law libraries, automation, and the business of law. Today I share my interview with Evan Parker, a PhD statistics expert and founder of Parker Analytics. Evan is ushering in a new era of data-driven decision-making for law firms by working with them to collect, assess, and evaluate their data, optimizing how they do business. He uses data to help them discover problematic trends on recruitment, diversity, and efficiency and then identify their solutions. He recently discussed one of these trends on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. In this episode, Evan shares some surprising insights he's unearthed through looking at firm data, like how a good grade in torts is a better predictor of success than a good grade in contracts, why a top-tier law degree does not predict greater success in a law firm than a mid-tier law degree, and all of the myriad factors causing certain demographic groups at law firms to fall behind and others to succeed. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Evan, thanks so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, Evan, I think some of our listeners have already heard of you. You've written a fair amount, and you have started to solve some big problems in legal. I want to give you an opportunity to talk through your background. Uh, You've got a PhD in political science, and here you are in the legal space solving a lot of big problems. That's a a great question, and I'd love to say that I arrived here by a plan that I had hatched when I was 20 years old. Uh, The truth is much more bumpy and uh, was unforeseen. So I, I started as a PhD graduate student at the University of North Carolina, and uh, I was brought into that program through a family, my, my stepdad is a professor, and he encouraged me to, to think about that as a career. And I'll be truthfully, I didn't really have a full understanding of what that would look like. But I knew there were certain things that I found very interesting. Uh, I knew that I found a kind of an abstract way of thinking about the world very interesting. And I also found human behavior fascinating. It was pretty clear that what I wanted to study was what we call in political science, political behavior, which tends to focus a lot on psychology, why people vote the way that they do, why people have the opinions that they do, whether they can change their opinions, and if so, why. And so all of those kind of high-level abstract interests were always a part of what motivated me. And then when I got to graduate school, I realized that essentially when you get a PhD, it means you learn how to do research. And by and large, that means you learn how to use statistics. And I was no math whiz coming in, but what really captured me early on was uh, a combination of the the software and the ability to kind of generate knowledge through writing code, and then the ability to present that knowledge in a way that was very visually interesting. And and, what types of psychological or behavioral questions were you trying to answer as part of your dissertation or part of the projects that you were working on while you were still a political science PhD student? So what what really fascinated me was about perception of essentially the world. So my advisor was a person named James Stimson, and he, he had really made a name for himself, arguing that the mass public as a whole was effectively rational, uh, which which really contrasted with the way that psychologists viewed cognition, right? And they tended to focus on biases and errors in judgment. So you had this interesting contrast between individuals who were more or less irrational, biased, subject to all sorts of judgmental flaws, but then a mass public that appeared to behave much more rational. And so that paradox really fascinated me. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand that balance. And my dissertation focused on bridging that gap between a collective public that was sensible and individuals who were biased. And it is an interest that sticks with me to today. I think it's becoming a much more pervasive interest, even in the legal profession not just political science, with respect to understanding how we make decisions, understanding how some of our implicit biases and distort judgment produce suboptimal outcomes. And somewhat fortuitously, I think it it all kind of carried forward, even as I left 
the academic profession and moved over into you know working in in law firms you know there was this focus on decision making and an increasing sense that there were probably obstacles to high quality decision making and and that's where I think data comes in and absolutely what was that transition what did that transition look like right uh, I mean so I was an academic but maybe not an academic at heart there were certain things about being an academic that just didn't fit well with who I was. Uh, what really motivates me and, and really keeps me excited today is that in, in firms and, and, and legal departments, I think there's a major difference because they get results and then they act on them. And I think in you know a more research-focused academic setting, you get the results, you write about them, and they sit on shelves. So I was contemplating a move, looking to do something different. We had moved to New York and and I, by happenstance, was connected with a professor at Penn State named Chris Zorn, whose name I knew. I didn't know Chris personally. Uh, and Chris was working with some other individuals. Bill Henderson uh, was one of them uh, on this new company that they had created called Lawyer Metrics. And Lawyer Metrics was essentially, you know, way ahead of its time, right? Because what Bill saw was opportunity to use data in a way that it was not currently being done inside of law firms. And I think that came from his exposure to the law firm environment and recognition that, hey, this doesn't quite make sense to me that decision-making could be done in this way, and yet you have these highly profitable organizations full of millionaires. What's going on here? So I got in early with that group, and had I just shown up in a law firm and said, hey, I've started this new company, and I'm going to apply social science to your firm. Tell me about your firm. (laughs) It would have failed miserably. And that's because you have to know the domain, and you have to understand. And here I'm not saying I need to understand the law necessarily, but I need to understand firm organizations, firm cultures, expectations, the problems firms have. And so without Chris and Bill really showing me the ropes and giving me exposure to that domain expertise, I wouldn't be here today because I wouldn't have been able to understand it. And so when you were learning the ropes, what steps did you take to understand this this culture, right? I mean, I'm kind of inside looking out, but how did you as a, a statistician, a political science PhD, come in and say, I'm going to learn, I'm, I'm thinking about like an anthropologist, right? Studying, you know, studying, studying some species of animal or something, right? What did you do to study this, this rare species of animal referred to as a lawyer? Well, to be fully candid, trial and error, made lots of mistakes. So I think I've always been self-aware enough to pay attention. Someone gave me a book, Teaching Smart People to Learn, and that was very influential to me because it predated by 50 years this this design thinking, the idea of empathy, right? It was like the book's all about high profile, powerful, smart consultants who, if their clients don't understand what they've provided, it's the client's fault. I think what I saw in that was, okay, that's actually wrong, right? If the client doesn't understand what you're doing, that's your fault, right? right? And so you need to address that. And I think that's that overarching idea shaped a lot of what I did. And so as I would present information, at the same time, I was kind of reporting on the facts and what we found. I was also trying to gauge reactions and trying to understand uh, what would work. And then there, there was you know, more than a few instances where we were more like collaborators with our clients than we were kind of uh, delivering the results and kind of absorbing the results. It was much more collaborative. At Lawyer Metrics, what kind of problems were you trying to solve? At the core, if you were to summarize it, it would be to address the inefficiencies and the fact that these are very complex organizations and I think that's what fascinates me about them. They are talent driven and so behavior underlying the people is really what's driving outcomes and yet they were incredibly complex but often managed in a way that didn't attempt to grasp the complexity. And and really what we were looking to do was absorb data however it came about. Maybe we collected it through surveys. Maybe we took the firm's data and essentially looked to help firms. And I think over the years, we came to recognize that we were working in areas that you could kind of classify as talent, broadly speaking, and then something more akin to business strategy, thinking even more holistically over time and how we think about it today. I mean, those three things are really inseparable, which is not often how firms view their business, right? They often because of their structure, think in terms of compartmentalized, siloed entities. So 
you know, the HR function is responsible for these tasks and these goals, and they work with a specific type of data. The finance department has a se separate set of roles and a separate tranche of data. But if you're not connecting those two, I mean, you're, you're kind of missing opportunities. So a lot of it was thinking of ways of, of bridging those opportunities and you know, today, what's really great is people aren't looking for everything, although I think sometimes that's lawyer's inclination. Let's compile all the facts. Let's get every possible piece of information we could and sift through it. And I think where we have the most success is actually when clients recognize they can't focus on all the facts. It's overwhelming. Let's let's provide uh, a rigorous analysis that directs focus on a few key areas. And, and those can be incredibly... So I want to home in on one of those uh, kind of talent-based questions that you've tried to tackle. And I'd love to know how you've tried to tackle it. If Evan's voice sounds familiar, you might have heard him on the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History. And the topic of that interview and that conversation was you know, couched in this narrative of Malcolm Gladwell taking the LSAT. The interview there with you was about success rates at law firms from folks coming from top five, top 10 schools at Harvard, Yale's of this world to uh, attorneys coming from still good, but not top, top shelf firms and how well they did at those respective law firms. And what did you find when you analyze that? And what other kinds of big questions are you trying to address in this broad field that you've referred to as, as talent? Great question. First, I'll just say I don't know what Gladwell scored on the LSAT, but maybe someday I'll find out. I, I think that's currency that's probably more valuable about anything else I could get. So with this kind of class of analyses, I think the, the motivation underlying what we're doing there is, again, going back to this idea that the legal profession is a talent-driven profession. Uh, obviously, you have technology creeping in in certain ways, but at the end of the day, you know, it's still a a person-driven business. It's a professional service that, that people are providing. And so what I think has happened over the years is both due to advances outside of, of law and, and advances in law, you know, I think of people like Scott Westfall at Harvard, just really pushing the envelope and getting people to think more consciously about how you manage talent. And you know, that is not a topic that people have really sought to address in a systematic fashion. And I think you could argue that that's true of all the, the areas that maybe firms are really wrangling with right now, that there's been a more uh, ad hoc approach or a, an idea-driven approach, let's go for it, without a real appreciation of the system. So in the talent area, what you're really thinking about is a system that involves sort of a decision about who you're going to hire. And then once those individuals come into the firm, how are you going to support their development? And the Gladwell podcast was really all about that first component, the selection idea. And I think an important thing to remember when you think about, okay, how are we making these selection decisions? What I see from firms today is an acknowledgement that the way they currently operate and, and the criteria that they use, maybe it doesn't necessarily perform as well as it might. So some of the ideas there are when you're kind of thinking through well, what are firms paying attention to, uh, they're often really a short list, right? And they're looking at the school that the, the candidate went to, right? They're looking at uh, grades. They may look at one other or, or two other factors, and then they you know, will, will consider how an interview went. And in various ways, all of those indicators are, are more or less invalid. Really? You'd, you'd go as, as far as to say invalid and unreliable? Well, so I think the one area that I would say validity is probably there would be with grades. I think you do see grades tending to matter, yes. but probably not in the way that firms think about. Just to touch on that, if you look kind of across different courses, your performance in one type of course may matter much differently than performance in another. What a tendency, though, is firms just looking across these 10 courses that they took, how did they do? And there's more, there's richer information than what they're leveraging. What are the courses, if you know offhand, that really matter? And what are the courses? I'm hoping you're going to say that the courses I did not do well in law school didn't really matter much. Uh, what I can, I'll give you one example. Yes. Because most 1L students have taken civil procedure, torts, and contract. And given my background, I have no idea what, what goes on in those classes. <laughs> what I do know, though, is, is that you know, if you were looking to call out one course as 
for whatever reason, being more predictive of eventual success, it would be your performance in torts, which is always surprising to people. And again, you know, they understand better than me why it's surprising, yet it's a result that's held. You know, I, the first time we saw it, I thought, okay, well, maybe it's just this firm. You never know. It's not kind of a, a massive sample of data. But then you see it a few more times and you think, huh, okay, there, there's something interesting there that is predictive. But to my knowledge, no firm is saying, let's go after the torts. And even if they were, you really wouldn't want to think that way because the approach that we bring, it's kind of an algorithm, right? And as you know, an algorithm thinks about lots of information simultaneously. And so if you try to pull out pieces in isolation, right. make decisions on just those pieces alone, you're ignoring the other factors. And it's a long list of factors. And so you, you want to be mindful of all the factors that might matter. And then at the same time, you want to be able to make decisions that leverage those factors. But at the end of the day, this idea about invalidity does carry some weight. Another example, and when you looked at the interviews and kind of the one-on-one -on -one interviewing, people tend to engage in two behaviors when they when they conduct an interview. They are very much focused on trying to assess skills and talent, but they're also tasked with recruiting. And there's evidence when you're in that role of recruiting and selling at the same time, your judgment's flawed. And what we saw at a firm was Essentially, if you take a more principled metric that's comprehensive and evaluate how that predicts eventual performance and retention, and then you, you pit it against an individual interview score, the more principled metric is predictive in the way you'd expect. If you get uh, a higher interview score, in the case of performance, it was a non-factor. So whether someone said that was a great interview or not, it was basically that they were offering you a coin flip. And in the retention scenario, it was actually a negative result, such that if an interviewer gave someone a better review and said, this person's going to do great, that person was actually more likely to leave the firm early. So it's invalid, not necessarily because people are poor uh, evaluators, but because the nature in which those evaluations are carried out allow for you know, some of the things that I mentioned in the beginning really piqued my interest early on. Judgment, biases, you know, kind of likability, heuristic. Right. Right? We ascribe a lot of future behavior that probably isn't warranted based on the actual information we have at the time. So what's an example of a, a kind of principled approach to interviewing that doesn't rely on this push-pull of assessment as well as trying to impress the the candidate. What, one of the, the sort of one-liners that really have, shapes a lot of my decision-making is the simple idea that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. And so if you're thinking about what is it that is going to help us assess whether someone will do well here, you don't want to allow them the opportunity to say what they will do. You want to know what they've already done. So the, the crux of that is that you are asking questions that are going to allow the, the applicants to touch on behaviors. And ideally, those are behaviors that you believe to be instrumental to success at your firm. And there are really interesting data-driven ways to go about identifying what those success factors are. The rub is that these are intensive, they're time-consuming, uh, they require ideally more than one person to allow kind of a check on different interpretations of responses. So, right. you know, I would say, I think we know that this is a really effective way to interview. And yet it's something of an unrealistic expectation for most firms that you would bring this in and kind of interview in this capacity where you have you know, three to four partners who are not billing for the next 45 minutes, but they're you know, actually sitting there asking a scripted interview and they're asking it of all the candidates in the same way. But there are other ways of kind of coming at that in a bit more non-invasive way. And that's where, you know, you can begin to build models. And so one of the things that I learned from my time in grad school and my advisor was he had this, this sort of distinction between lumpers and splitters. And lumpers are, are, are people who are willing to acknowledge you know, this abstraction, this model that they're constructing to the world is not right. And if it has the properties of a model that you'd like to see, you ought to feel comfortable making decisions about that. Uh, a splitter is going to be somebody who really is uncomfortable pulling back and saying, 
we care about determination. We care about grit at the firm, but I don't feel comfortable that I can use someone's biographical history as a proxy for whether they have that. So as a, I'm a lumper, right? I'm willing to say, you know, we're going to code up a bunch of resumes and we're going to look at biographical histories. And we think that certain features of, of individuals' biographies really do kind of equip them with a more determined uh, approach to, to work and life. And, and other experiences are not going to have that. And at the end of the day, can I demonstrate definitively, uh, for example, someone who had the blue collar work experience background and ended up being successful and that was a consistent result at a given firm. Does that occur because they definitely, from that experience, became you know, more entrepreneurial or more sort of determined and, and sort of demonstrated this grit? I can't say that, but I'm comfortable feeling that that's what's happening. In a correlation-based way. Yeah. Uh, and it is a, it's a tool, tool that you want to evaluate but at the end of the day, it's not a precise measure. There's this sort of abstract component to doing you know, a data-driven approach that you just got to go along for the ride. Now, yeah. how do you how do you deal with the, the problem where you know a lot, and this is still the case in 2019, but the vast majority of partners at the most prominent law firms in this country are white men. No one's shocked by that. And so if you look at retention numbers at a certain firm, the greatest retention numbers are going to be upper upper class, highly, highly educated white men. How do you avoid uh, letting that bias spill into results? You know, one way to look at this in a, in a data-driven way is to say, well, you know, so-and-so firm, we've been really successful with white men. Let's hire young white men and they'll turn into the old white men that we have now versus an environment that can, instead of saying, well, we don't retain women well, so let's not hire them, focus on how can we retain women better? How can we uh, make this an environment where minorities can stay at firms as long as the typical, uh, you know, white lawyer? Mm -hmm. uh, so the first answer, uh, which is you have to have fewer white men in positions of influence because you have to have diversity of perspective. Obviously, you're not going to get there for you know, a period of time, right? So I think in the short term, your question, there's a kind of historical record of success at these firms. And that historical record was more or less written, you know, in quotes, by white men. So are we essentially building models and generating predictions that are going to propagate? that. And so that, I mentioned the idea about collaboration, that challenge has existed and has come up before, but it was only you know within the last couple of years that working with a, a client, we really dug into that. So what you really need to do is, is you begin by essentially diagnosing kind of the current state of affairs, right? And you look at questions like, like you're posing. So getting back to this idea about a system, you know, what, what is the system? How has it operated and has it created asymmetries? Have, has it led to a scenario where certain demographics, for example, have fewer opportunities or have fewer hours? And if the answer is yes, that doesn't mean you can't go forward with a predictive approach. What, what, what it means is you need to account for those asymmetries and ensure that going forward, you're, you're not propagating them, right? And so uh, in the world of, of kind of building algorithms, we say we, we're de-biasing it. And it's, it, you know, it, it's an important piece because in my experience, you do tend to see uh, at least some of the, what your listeners are probably expecting, right? That certain groups do tend to have fewer opportunities. They do have fewer hours. Maybe their, their valuations are lower. And I, I want to be clear that you know it's not that that's reflective necessarily of a, of a bias, right? A kind of overt bias towards certain groups. I'm convinced, having looked at a lot of data, it's really more reflective of some of these you know, natural tendencies we have as, as human beings and the psychology of seeking out familiar groups and uh, you know whether or not we're even aware of it. Most of the time, I don't think we are. But the long run consequences is that you see those kind of marginalizations happening. So you need to, I think, quantify them, understand them, 
the more willing you know, a firm is to kind of view it head on, I think the better. Because frankly, if, if you don't do that, you're essentially just putting your head in the sand. Uh, and then you know, I think you, you deal with that at the outset, you essentially kind of revise history <laughs> uh, in a way that is equitable. And then you need to think about, okay, now that we, we can bring in you know, a, a group and, and we've found ways of, of bringing in a group that we really feel are both perhaps more diverse than they have been in the past, which by the way, I mean, I always think this is important. You know, a diverse group includes white males, right? It's just not only white males. Right. Uh, you would need to ask, okay, you know, what else can we do to kind of ensure the equitable culture that we're after? And that is another place where thinking like a system and bringing data to bear is, is just fundamentally important because what I'll just give you a few kind of examples yeah, of I things that, that we've seen. Um, you do have people from diverse backgrounds who have made it in firms and have succeeded and risen to the partnership. And one of the things that we observed in, in looking at how work was being assigned and, and what those assignment networks looked like was a very interesting uh, homogeneity within groups. What I mean by that is you can essentially look at the extent to which people are connected to other people. And we were here thinking in terms of you have originators and you have working timekeepers. And what we wanted to evaluate was, you know, who are the originators giving the work to? Right. And let's overlay some diversity categories on that. So let's overlay race, ethnicity. Let's so overlay. let me pause right here. Yeah. Um, this is work that you actually did on behalf of a law firm. Yes. Right? So a law firm, just a, a quick kind of uh, footnote here, a law firm approach, and I think we, we didn't fully get to the point where you founded your own company, Parker Analytics, but <laughs> it just trust us. Let's that, get that, that out there. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. That happened. Uh, and this is Evan Parker of Parker Analytics. So you found Parker Analytics, and a law firm comes to you, or you pitch a law firm, but in, in any case, there's a business arrangement where they're coming to you and saying, here's our data, solve this particular problem on, uh, you know, how are originators here? And this is, you know, for, for those of you who may not uh, be familiar with the term, these are business originators within a law firm, how they assign the work out to typically associates. Mm -hmm. And so they, they engage with Parker Analytics for you to you to conduct this work. Yes. Just wanted to yeah. present a little background. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's where I often go to these events and there seems to be the sense that everybody inside the firm should know the problems they have and know the approach to solve them. And I think people have to get away from that and recognize they may be mindful of what they're really focused on, but they shouldn't assume that, that you know, they can find somebody internally who has the solution, right? Sure. Um, because this is where I think you just have to have a, a broader sense of what's possible. Sure. And if you went to law school, I don't know why you would know the social science literature and you know quantitative methods. There's no reason you would, right? So you know, give that a look. Give that a look. Much much bigger uh, conversation. I, I I mean, I, I love this conversation. That this this is a fundamentally a conversation of, uh, about how you know. I think in a lot of ways about how you know you have companies that uh, are made up of. Uh, you know, chief executive with an MBA and you've got a lawyer and you've got maybe a scientist and you've got a, an accountant and, you know, you've got all of these different minds all contributing to the business where in law firms, you have 10 lawyers with no, no diversity of education. We're talking about, yeah. you know, gender diversity or racial diversity. How about educational diversity with respect to how law firms are run? And of course, you know, I'm being reductive about this. This is because there's rules on it, right? right. As you well know. Right. In any case, uh, I'm fascinated by this. We can do a whole other podcast just on that dynamic. But I want you to get back to that the the um, the work that you did on originators and how they directed yeah. directed work. Yeah. But and then let's return to that because yeah, I, I don't want to forget a, a point because I think it's an important one. Yes. Um, so the the origin the question is how is work getting distributed and. You know, based on the social science, there's a reason to expect you might find you know, patterns that, that don't reflect uh, just assignment that's more reflective of the general population within the firm. Right? And so we essentially contrasted you know, what it would look like if work was being out kind of proportionally to the demographics. And then we asked, you know, does that 
pattern hold when you look at specific groups. So, you know, the diverse race, ethnicity originators, right? Were they giving work kind of in a way that was proportional to the firm in terms of, you know, the, the white male associates? And then we just created a diversity dichotomy for simplicity or, you know, uh, diverse race, ethnicity. So we, we grouped the categories together. Right. What you saw was that it was very much not proportional. Uh, and in fact, the diverse race ethnicity originators were giving work at a much higher rate than expected to the diverse uh, working attorneys. You saw the same result for women where the female originators were, were really giving much more work than you would expect based on the female working timekeepers representation in the firm. And then you know, the white males were giving the work disproportionately to the white males. And so, so they're giving work to folks who look like them. Right. And so I think what you saw there, and that was true even after you, you took account of the fact that you know, different practices have different you know, distributions of, of race, ethnicity, and so on. And this is, a, I think, a classic case of you know, no one set out to say, all right, all the women at this firm only give the work to women. But I think, you know, and this is where working with uh, my business partner, Kathleen Fredrickson, is really helpful uh, you know, she, she said, here's what's happening, Evan. You know, the women partners at these firms really struggled to make it. They did make it, but it was a harder hill for them to climb. You know, they had to work against additional challenges that the white men did. We know why that is. And so now these women are looking to make the path less challenging for the up-and-coming female associates. And all of that is actually fine, but the rub was when you overlaid what the work these originators across these categories had to give out. And in effect, uh, what you saw was uh, the, the non-white male groups had kind of fewer total hours that they could distribute and they had basically smaller books. Right. And so probably it's, lower, lower rates per, per engagement. Probably. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have the rates data. We, I think we could back it out, but certainly because, I mean, there are differences in representation representation across practices. Right? Right. I mean, labor and employment is a uh, you know, lower rate practice than M&A, right? it just is. Yes. Uh, M&A is very much a white male practice. Uh, labor and employment is more diverse. And so the issue there was that you were really seeing kind of how the, the assignments could organically create these embedded asymmetries that would then carry forward. And so, you know, in the fifth year, these diverse associates, when they're evaluated, people say, well, you know, their hours are lower than this group. Uh, they've, they've generated less in fees. You know, it just doesn't look like they're cutting it. But in, and it's sort of this sort of unfortunate consequence, right? Because it was actually the best of intentions that led to those results. And so that's super, that's super interesting. Yeah. When you start thinking about, you know, how can data play a role there? Well, you can actually track without a lot of effort, you know, who's connected to whom, and you can assign that, you know, you can view that at the level of the individual lawyer. You can view that at the level of practice groups. You can look at different demographic groups. And so what we're increasingly seeing is, and it's not an easy sell, frankly, because I think it, it begins to make firms uncomfortable, right? You, you're, I wrote something recently and said, you know, if you want a credible commitment to diversity, really the first thing that's got to happen is you got to have sort of this feeling of anxiety and unease, and you've got to have difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Right. And, I mean, it's just a fact because... You're, you're unlikely to see, and there are probably exceptions, but you're unlikely to see a world that looks as great as you'd like it to look, right, from a perspective. Does this kind of uh, play into that old line, uh, don't waste your time giving business advice to millionaires, right? Uh, if there's no acute problem that they're facing, if there's no kind of hair on fire issue in their mind, they're at best going to give the problem, uh, you know, a, a, a you know, a little thought, and then they're going to kind of move it along. Is that, is that where you're referring to? <clears throat> I think that's what you have to break through. Yes. Because you're exactly right. I mean, to sit in a room and, you know, the people across the table are, are millionaires, 
and they're essentially hearing me and I'm saying, you could do better. They're like, right. well, I'm doing pretty good. All <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, that third, exactly third lake is, house remodel is going well. Yeah, right, what yeah. exactly is going on? Right. However, uh, I think there are two two points to that that work against it. One, yeah. there are people who are, I think, I think the, the intentions are, are there almost uniformly. But there are people who recognize, okay, the way that we've been operating it's not really going to help us address some of these challenges. Right? And so, although I've been successful, if I'm really committed in a credible way, we do have to do something differently. And then if you can get them to, to just dip their toe in the water, what I see always is as soon as you begin to provide information and data, uh, there's a, a kind of softening of that view because people see, oh my gosh, this is really helpful. It's not that I'm doing things differently necessarily. It's not that I am uh, you know, having to do all these things that I don't want to do. It's that, frankly, I didn't necessarily always know what to do. Now I'm getting this focused piece of information that's rich and meaningful, and I can support my thinking. And so and that also maybe yeah. kind of elucidates the fact that the, there's some stuff going on at the firm that doesn't make a lot of these people feel very good, right? Right. Um, right. But, and that is one of the things that's powerful about data. Uh, it's that you can find yourself in situations where someone's just more or less kind of talking out their ass. Sure. Making things up. Sure. Uh, or kind of confidently stating anecdotes. And, you know, without a counter or with, you know, anecdotes but from less senior people or you know less influential people right well the other antidote is going to win but if they're both responding to you know an objective fact and they understand what that fact means they have to talk about that fact and it's much harder to allow the anecdotes to to kind of win it doesn't mean it, 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 it always wins uh you know you will still have people who say well i didn't have that i'm successful Right. And not you know, at our in my experience, yeah. you know, that's when I know, okay, they will not work with us. That's okay. Uh, but there are enough people that are, I think, recognizing they've been putting forth lots of effort, but don't really know if that effort's had much of a payoff that see an opportunity to provide a, a kind of a baseline rooted in data. And then they can go out and continue doing what they're doing and they can then check back on that baseline and ask, well, has anything happened? Uh, have we seen it move in the direction we wanted to? And that is getting back to your uh, other comment where we were talking about, you know, law firms and they're run by lawyers and you know, there's not a diversity of, of uh, training. Right. Uh, I, w I think I, I do agree with that, but I will say this. When we work with our clients, they make our analyses much more interesting and they have really great ideas. I think a lot of people, and this is both on the professional side and the, the lawyer side, have ideas about how the firm operates. They have ideas about uh, you know, patterns that they've almost intuited, right? Either by experience or they've actually looked at some data, but they don't quite you know, they're not confident enough in, in that intuition to go on record, right? Sure. This is the problem. And even if they did, someone would say, well, how do you know? And you can't really say, well, um, my intuition. Right. Right. And, and so this is where you know, kind of supporting that thinking is, is where I think we can come in. And there's no reason a firm couldn't employ someone like me full time. I think, uh, I don't know that many are equipped. I don't think they would know how to do it. Yeah, um, we are seeing some trends in that direction, right? I know the firm of Littler has a chief mm -hmm. data officer, and there's a couple other, you know, KL Gates and others have in-house data scientists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not sure they're working on things quite as uh, you know, talent personnel related as this. Uh, but I mean it, it, certainly I'd agree with you. Things are moving that direction. Yeah. Well, and this is where I think it's going to be hard to find somebody that has immediate understanding of the firm dynamics and the, the profession and the business of law, but then also all the kind of quantitative background. So I think a lot of those roles may go a different direction. Uh, 
it's, which again, it's not to say that that is, it has to be the way, but I think that's currently what I would see is you know, there's more of an enterprise focus uh, on making data available to everybody right. and kind of figuring out. So, you know, I always know that if someone says, you know, we're going to hire the data science team and they're in the IT group, I think that's wrong, right? Yes. That's the wrong place uh, because the data, you know, analytics, they can answer a whole broad range of questions. And, you know, here's another concrete example that's, it is in the talent area. Um, you know, someone we were working with had this idea that at the end of the year, reviews, uh, there tended to be a, a disproportionate number of reviews for women that were conducted by, you know, less senior people. And, and the men were getting reviews from more senior people. Huh. And I think every firm has the ability to kind of investigate that. It's not an incredibly complex analysis, but who would think to do it if you're in the IT group trying sure. to build, um, you know, a kind of way for every partner to be able to track budgets, right. which I'm not, not to say that's not important, but it, it, it isn't, it's not kind of a, a fundamental driver in the way that equity and culture and, and morale, like those things to me are much more central yeah. at the end of the day. And those are abstract ideas, right? And so you need people who are open to more abstract thinking. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, you know, and you're, you're really laying out a lot of these different kind of touch points of where, um, you know, traditionally successful groups and, and, and law firms kind of separate and kind of, move up and, and leave traditionally, you know, uh, unsuccessful groups behind, right? Uh, the review process and who administers the review reviews, the uh, practice groups they get, uh, you know, kind of recruited into and the respective rates that they apply to their work, the caliber of work they get and the amount of work they get. Right over a week-long period, this may not bear many important results, but over five years, you know, you clearly can see a separation, right, in uh, you know total profitability per lawyer and total hours billed, all of those things. You know, I want to uh, cap off this this discussion of diversity with an interesting um, uh, you know thing I read about about you, Evan, and that is that you've worked on this diversity scorecard idea and. Uh, you've advanced this idea and you've supported it through data that diverse teams are more profitable. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've had a discussion like this on this podcast before with, uh, the, uh, president of the United Kingdom bar association, mm -hmm. Christina Blacklaws. And that's really how she leads this, right? Because it is data driven and it, it it's not a, you know, cultural argument or a political argument, although a lot of these things can kind of get politically charged, it's, hey, uh, from a kind of a McKinsey or Bain point of view, do the thing that makes your firm most profitable. Right. Uh, what, you know, uh, uh, if, you, if you can, briefly, how is that supported by data? Because I think there's a fair amount of skepticism around that notion that diversity can be lucrative and, and profitable. Yeah. So... I think there there has been a lot of work done on this. Uh, I'm familiar with especially the McKinsey work looking at you know, companies with more diverse boards versus less diverse boards and, and returns and so on. We didn't see much out there about law firms, right, in the legal profession. And, uh, you know, if it didn't happen in a law firm, it didn't happen. Right. Uh, so we thought, well, let's see if it, it has happened in a law firm. And uh, the scorecard... I'll talk about after the, the profitability part, but you know, I think one important thing to recognize here is you know, we were viewing profitability. And when I wrote something on this, you know, I try to be clear that it isn't so much, it's not profitability as an indicator of money, although that's what it is. It's really more that, you know, profitability is an indicator of kind of effective business. Yes. Right? You're running your business well and you're having outcomes that are, providing higher returns for whatever reason. And so we've been looking at what differentiates firms in terms of profitability for a, a couple of years. And it was more recently that I decided, well, let's just put another 
predictor in this model, right? So the kind of original model that uh, Bill Henderson and I published in the American Lawyer looked at factors like the practices that firms have. Uh, it looked at characteristics like geographic concentration, right? Like are your lawyers centrally located in one space or are they kind of diffuse and you have lots of lawyers and lots of offices? Uh, we looked at practice concentration, right? Like how many of your lawyers are centralized in one, two, three practices versus more general service? You have lots of lawyers in all the practices. Those were really important predictors. Uh, prestige was an important predictor. Obviously, leverage is a really important predictor. Um, but when we when we got to uh, kind of this area where we were wanting to think more about, you know, is there this diversity profitability connection? Uh, we put that in the model. And so we had, have this analysis, and this is just another algorithm, right? And it, it's it's about the Analog 200, and you're looking at, you know, let's, let's let all of these characteristics of the firms potentially it'd be explanations for why some are more profitable than others. And if you look at you know, the, the share of diverse race, ethnicity attorneys as a predictor, it's really important. And this is the case, even if you are, uh, you're controlling for, or you're kind of accounting for where the firm's headquarters is, what's their geographic footprint, uh, you know, what type of work do they do? Like all the things that you can kind of imagine being, obvious predictors and then i mentioned concentrations on and yet that diversity results still held and yeah, this is an observational study so you can't say definitively because they're diverse it's causing more profitability but we did do some you know methodologies that are designed to come as close as possible to being able to draw those causal conclusions right but it still leaves open the question okay well why Right. And this gets back to you know, being a lumper who says, you know, I'm okay measuring this kind of basic descriptive characteristic and assuming that it means more than just this descriptive characteristic. Got it. Probably picking up a little bit on the culture of the firm. But I do think it's picking up on the fact that almost by definition, if you have a higher share of uh, people from you know, different race ethnicities, you're going to be exposed to more people from different race ethnicities and likely people who have had different experiences. And what we know is that those groups tend to make better decisions. So there's a really uh, interesting set of studies by uh, a guy named Randy Kaiser. He's published them in a few books wh where he essentially takes uh, you know, litigation and settlement data from California and New York and demonstrates, uh, he's looking at gender diversity, but he demonstrates that when you have gender diverse teams, they do better. They make fewer decision errors in the process of you know, kind of making settlement offers, carrying something forward to trial, right? He's able to kind of quantify the difference, right? What was a settlement offer? What did they end up with at trial? How big was that mistake? And, you know, he finds that if you have two men, it's kind of the key uh, legal team versus a man and a woman, men and a woman outperform at a significantly higher rate. Uh, I think it's like a difference, a kind of 10% gap in the decision error rate. Major gap. Yeah. And, and you know, again, it's probably not, the, it's not the, the genetics, right? It's, it's the experiences and the kind of dynamic that exists when you have a, a man and a woman working through these complicated issues, recognizing, you know, kind of opportunities in a different way. And so I think that profitability component I think that is some of what you're seeing, right? You're seeing firms that uh, for kind of whatever reason seem to be better. They seem to have clients who are more willing to pay more. Uh, maybe they're better managed internally, who knows? But I think a lot of that comes from this broader exposure, uh, the, the kind of Low, lessened proclivity for groupthink and kind of like a one-dimensional approach, and you know that's a result that's that's been robust. It's held over time, um, so you know I think it's there. I'm I, I will go to the mat with that result. At the end of the day, yeah, I can't definitively say why. Right, I I only have speculation and theory. I don't sure. have. Hard evidence, and really, that was part of being a lumper in a way. Yeah, I mean, that would require uh, 
you know, it's almost like randomly assigning, you know, this firm became more diverse, this yeah. firm became less, and we studied for five years, uh, which would never happen. But there's enough evidence, uh, and there's a lot of interesting literature on diversity that shows all of these kind of fundamental uh, decision processes are enhanced when so, there's different perspectives. Got it. So separate and apart from diversity, you, you discussed a, another couple of things that you evaluated in this profitability study. I think a lot of our listeners, and our listeners are, I think, disproportionately on Watch 200, would be really fascinated in uh, what other um, characteristics or metrics um, were correlated in this study with higher profitability versus lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is a really, you know, firms ought to care about this because in some ways it can help them in making some difficult decisions. Yes. And before we got started, we were talking about you know, it's, a, it's a tough market right now, especially for a, you know, a certain set of firms who, uh, you know, they're not so differentiated, right? Um, and so one of, the, one of the real takeaways there was this idea that concentrated firms, firms that are, are more focused and have a, a more clearly defined practice profile uh, tend to be more profitable. So what that suggests is if you're kind of faced as a decision maker with the options of, kind of continuing to support 20 practices with similar budgets even though some of the practices don't seem to be as, as lucrative or they seem to be having other issues, whereas others are really rocking it. Uh, that, that evidence suggests the decision there that makes sense from kind of a, a follow the data perspective is to push more resources, provide more support to those practices that seem to be core and instrumental to the firm and, you know, frankly, make some tough calls on some of the other things. One of the reasons that I think that result is of value is because it can compel firms to think a little bit more in, internally about, you know, what do they really do well? Right. And you know, I just was on a, a brief little interview yesterday with someone from Thomson Reuters on this point that, you know, firms have this internal data that they, you know, they still do underuse. Um, but one of the things that, I think they can do is dig into the matter, dig into the, the, the kind of matter billing data and begin to kind of develop ways of evaluating uh, their core, right? What are they good at? And you know, just one example of, of how I've seen that work, uh, there's often firms today thinking in terms of, kind of their clients and their clients' industries. Sure. And so I think increasingly you're seeing firms assign industry codes to their clients. And at the same time, internally, they're still more practiced focused, right? Even a firm that shifts to a more business unit type model, it's still the business units are defined by the type of work and that's defined by the practices. Right. What you can do, and this is, you know, takes the, the majority of the work is in wrangling the data and kind of structuring it, but you can produce this really elegant, simple heat map that essentially shows you where's the revenue and you can cross practice with industry. And what you can begin to see is which of your practices tend to be kind of concentrating around similar industries. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you necessarily then cut off the firms or the practices that aren't, but you have, you have to ask different questions. Right. So right. if you see that you've got uh, the tax capital markets group and maybe like the life sciences and healthcare. And they all tend to be working with uh, financial institutions, uh, you know, life sciences companies and you know, maybe tech companies. Sure. And that, and they're all kind of ni nicely kind of uh, connected within the firm, but you've identified a focal point, right? You've identified something that it seems the firm has kind of cohesion around. Uh, it points to opportunities to cross sell. It points to uh, you know business development opportunities. Uh, I think it creates real marketing opportunities. I you don't hear many firms speak this way, although I think this is the Denton's play, right? Like, look, we understand our business, and you know you are a part of that core, right? Come come work with us. We're better because we focus here. 
Um, and then you may see, you know, some of the outlier practices, right? Like, so here's energy and you know, energy is working with you know, government organizations and, and some uh, you know, industry and construction, but they seem to be kind of off on their own. And I think they're, you can ask, well, this is kind of diluting our concentration to have this energy practice. Uh, it is, is that dilution worth it? And you may conclude absolutely, right? This, right. this is a great practice. It's knocked out of the park. But if you don't have those kinds of, of thoughts, I think you just begin to ask questions. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean, okay, we're dissolving the energy practice. But maybe it means let's figure out how we can bring the energy practice into this cohesive core where our other kind of concentrated practices are working in these areas, right? In these industries. So that's, I think, a really, uh, it's an example that I would, again, hope firms would, would be open to taking. I think more don't because of the, this sort of gap in understanding what's possible. Right. right. And so I've always wanted to get people thinking about you know, data as a support system for thinking. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't mean do things differently. And I think one of, one of my something I'll always remember is uh, you know, we did a, a revenue forecast for a firm and the idea was essentially this is a savvy executive partner and he says I think I can run my firm more like a portfolio because of the type of work we do I want to see if that's possible and so the first step in that was to forecast right and to say all right you know, here's where here's your revenue for the year and we use macroeconomic data we use sort of the historical data and we didn't have that year's revenue numbers, but they had come in by then. So we said, well, we think the forecast is going to be this number. And it was essentially the same number they had for, forecasted at the beginning of the year. And I thought, oh, geez, well, they're not going to find any value in this. Right. And I couldn't have been more wrong because essentially, you know, despite being a savvy firm, they didn't really know if that number was grounded in reality. Like, should it have been 10 million higher? Should it have been you know, 30 million lower, like they didn't really know. Right. So to see that they were kind of like on the mark with what the macro economy was, was sort of providing gave them just a level of confidence. And so that's sort of how data plays a role just in management, right? In I, I management of the firm. I love yeah, that. It's like, yes, I feel good about this decision and now I can go think about other stuff. Absolutely. So we, we only have a, a small amount of time left. I want to ask one, uh, hopefully not too big question. And, and that is, Based on the work that Parker Analytics has been doing, let's say in the last year or so, what are the kind of big questions that law firms are asking you? What are the kind of hair on fire questions, I should say, that we have not already yet discussed that law firms are coming to you for and saying, hey, Evan, uh, we've, got, we've got an issue here. Apply your data science mind to it and uh, hopefully we could get some interesting insights. Yeah. So the, the topic of diversity and equity is, is central. Uh, I recently wrote something, you know, question. And, and central as in you're getting inbound requests from law firms saying, hey, we, uh, we want to improve on diversity. Evan, help us. Uh, not, I don't think it's that overt. Sure. It, it's more, I think there's a, uh, a growing sense that getting back to some of the themes we talked about at the beginning. There's a growing sense that in the areas, all areas, frankly, related to management, but I think in talent specifically, there's a, a growing appreciation that the way that we've been operating to date, we could probably do better. And so, you know, our view is that you know, diversity issues and talent issues are kind of the same thing, right? It's not always that they're viewed in that way, but you're essentially talking about the same thing. And... I think what gives firms some comfort is to feel that there are approaches that leverage data that not tomorrow, yeah. but in a, if you, if you have a long-term view and you play that out and you, you kind of adhere to that model, you have a good chance of seeing finally some improvement. And it's both because you're, broadening the way that you're thinking about evaluating potential candidates. Uh, you're no longer relying strictly on indicators that, you know, frankly, just inherently make your pool less diverse. 
Um, pedigree, for example, I mean, if you're if you're only hiring from the top schools, you know those are the most sought after students generally, and so right. you, those students can only go to one firm. Uh, but getting additional confidence that hey, maybe we can think more broadly, and there are likely to be people who are going to be successful that may not have had the same attention in the past, but we feel a bit more comfortable because there's this sort of underlying foundation that that suggests they're going to be successful. But I think this sense, it, it, it really is more broad than just looking at talent. It's, it's that, you know, how do businesses operate and what do we do that makes us not like a business? And what could we do to make us more like a business? And the reason I think this is, I mean, it's almost like kind of early days of that kind of thinking because I've been having meetings with firms that are today incredibly successful. And yet, you know, I think they're partly successful because they've been forward thinking and they've recognized you know, this model, it works today, but it may not work in five years. And if we try to fix it in five years, that's the wrong way to go, right? We ought to try to start working on it today and in five years we'll have some success. So I think, um, you know, that, that is an issue that it, it spans all functions. I tend to interact the most with you know, senior level management on the talent side or kind of the, you know, the, the managing partners. And I think, you know, I really do believe that they are, especially the, the, the newer entrants, right? You know, the younger managing partners, right? Right. They, they, they have a different take on what they should be doing and what their responsibilities are and the associates and, you know, the younger, uh, folks coming into the firms have a different view. They expect transparency. They want some sense that decisions have a foundation that are more than a kind of handshake or, uh, or kind tradition. of gut level or tradition. That's how we always done it. Those kinds of answers aren't going to fly. And I think the savvier firms are recognizing that uh, being a bit more open and transparent and kind of acknowledging that no decision-making is perfect. We're improving by leveraging additional rigor. Uh, those are going to be firms whose cultures thrive. And, you know, I think that, that cuts across all of these issues, but at the end of the day, the reason you know, to me firms are, are, are kind of waking up to data is I think they've been doing, they've been making, you know, significant well-intentioned attempts, right? And I'll just stick to the diversity and inclusion uh, area. I mean, resources have been expended, tremendous resources, right? New hires, new departments, functions, but by and large, these, these, initiatives have not been designed in a way that you would even know whether they worked right right short of you know kind of crude measures like headcount or something like that and i think firms maybe have been sitting around the table and the leaders sort of said well did that work and everybody's like looking at each other <laughs> who's going to answer like how would we know and so i think where i'm seeing uh, people really kind of latch on to ideas and, and you know, we're going to do something in a couple weeks in, in Pittsburgh that, that I think this is a, a kind of framework that if we're going to kind of put forth this effort and we're going to have these initiatives, we need to do it in a way that's structured so that we understand the goal. We understand who's accountable. We understand what a, a an outcome that we would deem successful would look like. Right. And then we're going to communicate back whether that result in fact was successful. And, you know, that's where I think really to kind of wrap this all together with a bow you know, that's how a scientist thinks, right? I have a question. I have a design that I'm going to set up to answer that question or solve the problem. I'm going to implement that design and then I'm going to evaluate whether what I thought I would see is in fact what I saw. And like, to me, that's sort of obvious. And yet when I, when I kind of bring that thinking in into say a, a presentation, like people begin scribbling furiously and like really? scientific method, this is not right. <laughs> that complicated, but again, it's just not the training. It's not the mindset. Right. And so, uh, I think the issues at the end of the day, 
are, all right, how do we in five years sit around this table and rather than saying, did it work? And kind of giving the, the shrug of the shoulders because they did it work. And they'll say either, yes, it did. And here's how we know. Or in fact, we put forth our best efforts. However, we did not see returns. And um, the, the kind of key there is the long-term view. And that's, that's a harder one to, to bring people along with. But I, I have seen a tremendous, again, I've been around this for a while now, and the thinking today is different than it was seven, eight years ago. It's just more uh, empirically minded and, um, yeah, so diversity, inclusion, and talent. How do we retain our talent? Uh, how can data help? Uh, you know, how do we, it's, it's amazing what's possible. Right. Some days I think you know, kind of building a firm from, from scratch, you could almost build a kind of like this data driven organization. Uh, it would be harder to, to supplant the, the kind of winners at the moment, but it, it wouldn't be you know, out of reach. And it's very uh, interesting idea. Well, so, so Evan, thank you so much for joining us here in, in New York on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I would just say I'm optimistic because I think we are, we are heading in the right direction. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com tweeted us with the hashtag modern lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the case text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.